good sex should be a dance. It should really be a dance and a flow of movement. No awkwardness. You know, sure, sometimes you move around and you bang somebody in the head or something weird happens, right? But that's what good sex really is. It's this dance, it's this flow. And that flow comes from the connection you feel with somebody, a mutual connection where you're both so into each other and it's magical. Born in 92 on the block with the sharks Cut from a different cloth, y'all would get ripped apart You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark We dropping nuggets like Carmelo went to Rucker Park Now we eating from state to state, we scrape the plate I put my eggs in a basket, took a leap of faith I took a chance, now we grow and see the impact Decoding success with special guests, now let's bring Matt everyone, welcome to an all new episode of the Decoding Success Podcast, top 1% globally ranked show, thanks to you. Excited for you to tap in with us today as we bring to you episode number 283 of the show. But to preface this conversation, there's a reason you're listening to this right now. There's a reason for all things, right? Divine time, divine plan, and you've been guided here to this podcast, this episode. Instead of Netflix, instead of music, or even another podcast, you're tuned into this. I share this to cue a sense of surrender and a sense of open-mindedness, ultimately to help you explore what you are here to receive. You know that answer better than anyone, and there's a lot to come on this episode, as we are joined by our friend Lisa Ann. Now, Lisa barely needs an introduction, a living legend to say the least. We're talking about someone that performed at the absolute top of her industry, someone that has made pivots to conquer her next industry, a multi-time author, podcast host, so, so much more, And someone with a plethora of life experiences that we all can learn from, whether it be business acumen, relationship advice, intimacy tips, and everything in between. Oh, wait, fantasy football advice too. Just a lot to unpack in this episode, and we're really excited to have you rocking with us. To give you some bullet points as to what we're diving into today, number one, what operating in survival mode looks like, how to shift out of it, how to notice you're in it, and more. It's not a place we want to operate from forever, but sometimes we got to do what we got to do. It's a deep conversation. Number two, how to shift our identity away from the things we do and back to who we are at our core. So for example, when someone says, hey, Matt, who are you? Oftentimes I would jump and say, I'm a podcaster or I'm this or I'm that. No, that's what you do. That's what we do. But who are you? Number three, Lisa's rule for making decisions that will help you shift out of seeking things instantly. This is honestly one of the most this is honestly one of the most mind-blowing parts of this episode, so make sure you're tapped in for that. Number 4, how to know you're having good sex. What does good sex actually look like? Well, you're about to find out and honestly so much more. Before diving in, you already know what's coming. Putting it out there for you to share the good word. Be that beacon of light for the people in your life. This show ranks in the top 1% because of you, because you tap in, because you share these episodes. And we are so grateful for that. So whether you share them on social media, text message, email, word of mouth, saying thank you in advance, as I know there's something within this that the people in your life need to hear. So share, share, share. And now without further ado, we bring to you episode number 283 with Lisa N. Lisa, welcome to Decoding Success. I've very much so appreciated the pleasantries we've been exchanging, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've got quite a amazing podcast and I'm honored to be a part of it. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. You know, I just want to point something out before actually diving into the interview. You were so professional with me the other day. I actually said that to a couple colleagues of mine. I'm like, you know what? Like, you could have just talked like we were homies or something, but you were so professional. I don't know if I was shocked or what, but it, it stood out to me. 
it stands out to a lot of people. And for us to explain, I didn't realize you're on central time. So when I logged in to do the set up the time in the calendar, I was on central time. I was in St. Louis. So everything looked normal. It looked like noon Eastern time, right? Then I get back to Eastern time. I'm like, this is not Eastern time. It's central time. It's something so minor, but yet addressing it immediately, reaching out the fact that you were willing to reschedule with me as a podcast host myself. I know how complicated that could be, but I feel this same vibe that I'm feeling from you from producers. One of the things I do a lot during the fantasy football season is I hop on to all these different radio shows all over the US and I always come in like five minutes early and they're like, you know, we can call you back when we're ready. And I'm like, no, I'll listen to the show and I'll be here. Because I know how difficult it is to scramble during a break and try and reach somebody. So why leave yourself that responsibility? I'm in your queue and you're here. And so I've heard through the past, you know, 10 years now from producers at events were like, oh my gosh, you know, like everybody talks about how like you're early and you're so professional and it's just shocking. And I'm like, well, there's been no expectations set before me in this space to see how somebody would come out of the adult industry and show themselves to the world in a new way. You know, we get judged and we get a little misunderstanding about so many people in the industry who are brilliant, who are self-made, who are hardworking. And when they are faced with the opportunity to do something new, they're going to be just as committed to their new thing. And I think I'm kind of showing that to the world. I think people are really surprised. Do you feel like you were judged coming out of the industry? Yes. And I still feel it, you know, every day. I still feel it constantly. And I understand that's not as much about me at all as it is someone else's misconception or someone else's relationship with adult content. You know, there's people that I truly believe would rather never see us walk the streets or live a life outside of it because their brain can't compute. They've fantasized about something that is not real to them. And when it becomes real and they have to face it, their only response is to be negative or judgmental. And I've took me years to understand that it's not me, it's the other person. And it's my choice to take it on me. And I choose not to take it on me because it's way too heavy. It's way too unnecessary. And it's just bandwidth that I don't need to waste. Right. It sounds like what's happening is people identify you with that particular season of your life. And that's not how you identify yourself. So I'm curious, like, what is your identity? I would say self-made first and foremost. The fact that I've been out of my own since I was young. I don't have a relationship with my parents. I don't have anybody to lean or fall back on. And so being a survivor was really the beginning of it. And then once you get out of survival mode and you realize that you can continue the progress of your life wherever you decide to take that, then I've realized, okay, I'm just a self-made entrepreneur. I did take a different route. Maybe you take call it a U-turn, a sharp left. I took a different route to build my financial wellness off the jump to know that later in life, I'd be able to really dabble in some things that I truly enjoy. You know, the key in life is really how can you set yourself up So you're not working a job you don't want to work so that you're not existing in a space in life that you don't want to be. I want to wake up every day, be happy to wake up and be excited to be engaging in the things that I'm engaging with during the day. And the adult industry allowed me to do that because it not only set me up a nice little nest egg, but it also gave me a passive income that I'm still benefiting from today, layered on top of the other streams of income that I continue to build for myself. You just beat me to a question. I wasn't going to ask it, to be honest, because it's personal. I'm not going to be like, hey, how do you make money? Like, I'm not going to ask that fucking question. But I was curious if there was some sort of passiveness because, I mean, I'm sure there's stuff still on the internet. So that's how it works. 
So not stuff that other companies own, but I was sharp enough in the industry to understand owning my own product was going to be the most clutch move I could make. And I didn't even realize then how clutch it would be now. So I'll explain the production company first and then the buyback of content second. I decided that I would shoot my own content because we were all building our own websites. So if I could get with a distributor that would allow me to have the web rights of my product and they could have the distribution rights of my product, then I'm going to be making money both places and I'm going to be making money long-term. My website will always have members and distribution will always be happening. I still sell cable deals in Europe. I still sell cable deals in hotels all across the world. And I still do sell DVDs in markets where they don't have great internet. They still like DVDs. There's a lot of people that are still buying, though, of course, not as much as it once was. Sure. When the industry was faced in 2008, you know, 2005, the internet starts to pop. By 2008, these tube sites were starting to take over. And a lot of the, the owners of companies that were very successful took good care of themselves financially. They were like, you know what? We're out. This mm. is We're not going to play this game. We've made great money. We're going to move our families to another state and start a new business. Whether A lot of them got into toys because the toy lines make a lot of money and that's something that can't be stolen. So as these companies were starting to close, I approached them and said, hey, can I buy back all of the content with the model releases that I've shot with you since you're no longer going to be any distribution of this, these scenes? And so I bought back all of those scenes as well. That was a forward thinking move that was just, hey, I'm going to put this on my website. But what I didn't know yet was OnlyFans was going to come about. Mm. And OnlyFans is a great library for me. I repurpose all of the work that I've already done on my OnlyFans every day. They get a photo set and a scene, whether it's a solo scene, whether it's a scene from one of my movies, or whether it's the scenes that I bought back. And I have the model releases. I have everything I need. So that layer of additional income is way more than I ever thought it would be. And I'm making more money off of my previous library than I actually made when I was shooting it. I love this. What led you to this business acumen? Like that is a an advanced move to make, like future focus. Like what led you there? I did a lot of reading when I first went out on the road. I sat in on tons of public speakers because we didn't have the internet. You were dealing with like, I mean, this is the early 90s. You're dealing with like three channels in your hotel. There was no Netflix, no nothing, right? So when I would check into the hotel, I'd find out who was doing speaking engagements, you know, I remember seeing Stephen Covey, which was mm. amazing. You know, like, so I would do all of that. And I was raised in a family where my grandparents had their own business. After my grandfather got back from World War II, him and my grandmother started a greeting card business. And he was not only the artist and the designer of the cards, but he was also the distributor. And they had a motorhome that they built into a little distribution center. And over the summers, I would go with them. So I watched my grandparents run this business together. My grandmother from organizing the trips, the stops, doing the books, motivating the customers, how you do nice things for your customers at holidays, all of those things. And then I would go with them and we'd go store to store throughout the US and Canada and sell these greeting cards. And I really realized later in life how much that embedded in me when it came to being forward thinking, being organized, having a great work ethic, and also having great relationships with the people you do business with. I love the relationships that I've built over the years. Some of them have carried into my new world. Some of them are new. They always had very strong relationships with the people they chose to do business with. And I think that has helped me always have my finger on the pulse to be like, you know, I know these people well enough. Let me see what they're planning on doing with my content. Oh, you're not going to use it? Can I buy it back and at what cost? And so one thing leads to another 
but really understanding I always wanted to work for myself. And at 16, I wrote three goals in my Trapper Keeper. Remember those? You might not. You're kind of young. We had these folders called Trapper Keepers. And I kept these three goals. It was to travel and see the world, be financially independent, and make my own schedule. Mm. And when I brought those three goals, we had a project for class. I remember a lot of my friends were like, you know, getting married was on theirs, having kids was on theirs, and, and all of these life things were on theirs. And these were my three. Uh, that's all I've ever wanted out of life. And I've managed to achieve those three simple goals very easily. I love this so much. I want to move backwards before talking about those three goals. You mentioned the term survival mode. I'm curious what that means to you. Like, is that psychological, mental? Is it mindset? Is it physical? Is it everything? It's absolutely everything. Being on my own young, working in strip clubs when they were not like they are now, they're a lot safer. They're a lot more business friendly. They're not a lot more well run the late 80s, there was a lot of drugs, there was a lot of money laundering, there was a lot of stuff. So I was in survival mode in like a trust no one space, Mm. right? I was in survival mode knowing if I got in trouble in any way, shape or form and went to jail, I had nobody to call. I couldn't call my family. You know, I couldn't lean on anyone. And so that just me first surviving, it was actually, it was very helpful. But then it became a hindrance because I had to retrain my brain. Like, no, you've taken these steps now. You're no longer in survival mode. You need to be more selective of the work that you take. You need to be more selective of how you use your time because you're at this point now. That's hard habit to break. And and coming... Right from a situation where I felt like I had nothing, it's hard to go from that spot and erase that kind of mental trauma and remind yourself to not work yourself to the core where you're like, okay, now I can take a little step back, take a couple of days off and recharge. When you're in survival mode, you never do that. You never, ever, ever do that. You're always living in panic. Getting out of panic is a very important lesson for people to not keep pushing themselves because it becomes unnecessary and it becomes a detriment. Agreed. I'm curious to learn from your experience. What was the moment you shifted from survival mode to whatever the next mode is? And what is that next mode? I really don't think it shifted clearly till I left the industry. And that's crazy to think that I was in my 40s and it took that long, but there's fear factors in the industry that a lot of people don't realize. There's the STDs, there's HIV, there's times where the industry has to shut down for three months. I've been involved when it was shut down for six months. So one big part of your income is instantly removed, right? right? I was always smart enough to have balance. I would feature dance, I would do events. I only relied on one movie a month, you know, shooting minimally. But I think having things that were so uncertain kept me in that mindset. When I left and I became a minimalist and got rid of 75% of my belongings and moved into an apartment in New York City that could fit in my bedroom in my old home in LA, that was when it hit me. And so selling my house, liquidating my belongings, having that even extra nest egg and moving into a new environment where I'm no longer working in a world where it could be ripped away from me at any time. I lived through 9-11 on the road where no one was going to do any bookings or hire for gigs with travel for at least a year. Right. At that same time, we were dealing with issues in the industry where we were getting shut down quite frequently over STDs. So there's times where you wake up and you're like, there's no work for me right now. So it wasn't until recently, and I would say that was like 2019, that that shift happened. And I think the pandemic gave me a great time to really realign my mindset and say, okay, here we are now. When we come out of this, how are you going to view yourself differently? And how are you going to operate differently on the daily? Why'd you choose New York after LA? 
So when I started doing sports radio with Sirius XM in 2013, I got a studio apartment here and I lived both places. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do my show in studio. Like the, the excitement of having a badge to walk into the Sirius XM building was everything to me. And so I would fly here on Sundays for my feature gigs, do my show Monday night, fly back to LA Tuesday morning and be on set Tuesday. Like I, my work schedule was a grind then. So when I decided I was going to move back to LA, I only made it a year and I realized I miss New York. I like my freedom there. I love walking. I'm sick of sitting in traffic. And when I knew I was going to retire from the industry, I was sitting at a park one day at this beautiful waterway across the street from my place. It was where I'd go to think. And I was sitting there. I was like, you know, you moved to California to get in the business. You're leaving the business. You should probably move to New York to pursue the sports business. And so that was when it became very clear to me. I love the walking aspect of this city. I love that when I run my errands, I get extra time outside, that I get to walk. Sitting in traffic in LA becomes such a grind. It's a minimum of three hours a day, every day. And though I was caught up on all of my podcasts always, you're losing time. You're not able to respond to emails, messages. Like I don't do that when I'm driving. So it was just a freedom thing. And so I get here, odd time to be here full time, definitely moving December of 2019. But still, it's the best decision I've made. I love that. Yeah, I'm born and raised here. I mean, it's like nothing like it in the world. I mean, I've been so many different places. There's nothing like it. But I'm going to ask you a question. I'm potentially going to judge your answer. And I'm prefacing it with that. The number one pizza spot in New York. What do you think it is? Do you ever go to Made in Manhattan Pizza? I haven't been there. Where is that? On the Upper East Side. I've never been. Okay, you're in New York. We're going to meet there one day for a piece of pizza. I'm going to be honest. I don't think... All right, so... I think there's like potentially a handful of places to get pizza in Manhattan, but I think the good pizza is outside of Manhattan. Oh, interesting. Like where? Brooklyn, Queens? Williamsburg has this place. There's actually two places like I want to say down the block from each other that are absolutely fantastic. Forgive my lack of Italian tongue. L'Industria is one of them. And they put like burrata on top of the slice. It's out of this world. And then there's a new spot apparently called Fini. F-I-N-I, which I haven't had yet, but it's right down the block from Lindustria. Those two spots, like you taste it, like you'll you'll take a bite and you could eat a full pie because it's not super doughy. It's like really clean ingredients. It reminds me of like getting pizza in Europe. Okay. That just fresh and light. Exactly. Everything's light. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. I'm going to have to try your spot. What's it called? I'm going to write it down. Made in Manhattan pizza. But I mean, I'll always go buy Ray's and get a slice when I'm out walking around just because it's so nostalgic, you know, it's kind of grimy. I love it. (laughs) And, you know, you get that nice big monster slice. There is bad pizza in New York, but there's a lot of good pizza too. You know what bothers me when people come from wherever, right? Like tourists, they'll come here and they'll get like the dollar slices. And I'm not shitting on dollar slices. But like that's not New York pizza. And that bothers me a little bit because it's like, you're... how about the fact that the La Familia went out of Times Square and a sombrero went in there? Like that was criminal to me. I was like, which boycott? Like that's what you eat in an airport if you're desperate. You do not eat that in New York City. <laughs> I love this. Let's move backwards really quickly because I could talk to you about pizza and food all day. I love that you identified yourself with a term which was self-made versus I identifying yourself or saying your identity was something you actually did or do, right? And that's something that a lot of us get caught up in. So I'm curious from your perspective, what should people tuned into this walk away from like with actionable advice to shift their identity? Like if you said, hey, Matt, like, who are you? I would say, oh, a podcaster, like that's just like an initial reaction. But how do we shift out of identifying ourselves that way and into a way that's like characteristic or like who we are at our core? I think one of the great books I read, and it was from the same author who did the five 
the seven people I meet in heaven. It's slipping me right now. But he says, you know, how do you want people to speak of you at your eulogy? So your eulogy is not going to be what you do for a living, right? It's going to be how you affect people's lives, what you did, what people remember about you. And so from that, you take writing a short list of goals for yourself. And then every day, looking at the goals and thinking, how do I get there? They could be as simple as being loved by my family and friends. They could be, but for me, self-made comes from those three simple goals I knew I had at 16 and always focusing on being towards them. Traveling the world was so important. I come from Pennsylvania. Other than traveling with my grandparents in their motorhome, I had never flown. We had never gone anywhere with my other, my main family since either Florida or Jersey Shore. That's it. We never went out West. We never did anything. So part of me being self-made is knowing that those were the goals that I made for myself and that every day I've continued to go towards those goals. I love this. One thing I did a few years ago, and you're bringing this up for me, have you ever wrote your obituary before? Oh, no, but that's a great idea. Yeah. I put together an amazing, I worked on my will during the pandemic, everything from how I would like the service to be celebrated to, you know, my ashes being put into little stones for my girlfriends to, you know, letters that will go out to people that were a huge impact in my life. But I didn't think about the obituary. And that is great. I want final cut. And obviously, you don't get final cut at that point, right? At that stage. So I'm going to write my own obituary. Yeah, it was definitely something. I mean, I never did this before. So I'm like literally on like Wikipedia how or wiki how, whatever it's called. I'm like, how the fuck do you do this? Like, how do you write an obituary? And I just sat there and I just wrote about like what I want people to think and this, that, the like, it was really powerful. And then if you could reverse engineer that to live your life, like you're in a pretty good spot, you know? So similar to the eulogy right. theory, right? Except you are writing it yourself. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. So let's talk about these three goals, travel, financial independence, schedule freedom. Why at 16? Like where did you even, I mean, at 16, I was literally, I don't know, like looking up girls skirts in high school, like financial independence. Like where does that come from? Like freedom from a schedule perspective? We'll go in order. Okay. Let's go financial independence. So my parents had a brutal divorce in the seventies. This was not a thing yet. My dad's from an Italian family, an Italian family. If the woman doesn't do what's expected of her, she's not entitled to anything. So he didn't give my mom child support. He actually quit his job and worked under the table so that he didn't have to have his checks garnishes. So I watched my mom. We moved into my grandparents' basement. They built us a little apartment. I watched my mom work three jobs. And if it wasn't for my grandparents being able to like drive us to our dentist appointment, take me to basketball and take my brother to his sports, like we wouldn't have been able to do anything. And so I automatically was like, okay, that's not going to happen to me. I'm not going to have a child with some guy and then be stuck financially and never be able to get anywhere. It wasn't until I was about 10 that my mom had saved enough money to buy us a little house in an awful neighborhood just so that she could have her own independence and she could live in her own space. She went from living at home, as most people did in the 60s and 70s, to getting married. And then she was back living at home. That that wasn't ideal for her. And so that really gave me, and, and ironically, years later, I went back with my mom to help her take everything out of that house to clean it out when my grandparents went into a nursing home. And I was helping her move things out. When we got that basement apartment, I took a picture of it and I put it in my first book. And It looked exactly like it did when we moved in. It was like the yellow and brown, the 70s. And she said to me, you know, when you were eight years old, you told me 
that this would never be your life, that you would never be struggling financially after you married and had children with somebody. And you told me you were never going to have children. And I was like, wow, you know, like you were, she's like, it was jarring for me, but I'm like, well, I was an observant child who was never seeing my mom, because she was always working, visited my dad's on Sunday, who stayed in the big house that he and my mom lived in together and just lived this like, bought us toys, did us things. So the resentment was growing early because I was like, why are we suffering? And you're living in this big house by yourself. And so I was already thinking, I was already ahead of my brother was not thinking this way. This was not his mindset, but it was mine. I took a lot of the onus on me of like, how can I prevent this? So financial wellness was always like, boom. In my later, in my early teen life, I had lived with my dad for a couple of years. And that was back in the day when financial planners would come to someone's house and walk them through what they were working on. So my dad would have a financial planner come quarterly and I was never allowed to be in the room. My dad didn't believe that women should know about money. My dad did not trust for us to know about his money since he wasn't sharing it with my mom. And I remember again, having moments where I'd be sitting in my room during those quarterly, that's four times a year where you're sitting in your own thoughts going, man, I need to know about my own money. I need to have my own money. I need to have somebody coming to my house four times a year and talking to me about money. So probably by 15, 16, I was already on this like money. I am not going to struggle. This is not going to be how I live my life. And I'm going to be forward thinking of this generation's woman who can make, earn, save, invest, and create her own financial future. The making of my own schedule I'll skip to because it's twofold. I watched my parents do kind of not great jobs, work really hard for not great money. You know, I watched my mom's full-time job and I would think like, how can you drive to the same place every day and see the same people? It grinded me. And I realized now it grinded me because my grandparents showed me something so different. They had this beautiful freedom where they had set up these accounts and they were like friends that, that we'd beat up. We'd go to South of the Border was one of my favorite stops because all the tchotchke stores, you know, as a kid, you know, and you know, they would strap my bike on at the back of the motorhome. And so every campground we got to, I was riding around my bike and just, I felt this freedom in the life that they live, as opposed to this kind of shackles in the life that my parents live. Even with aunts and uncles, all grinding jobs where I was like, uh, you know, this is not going to be my way. This is going to be. So the making of my own schedule was really inspired by my grandparents, how they chose to live their life, how they were still making money. Sure. They, you know, some months were better than other months, but you can take that if you have that freedom to say like, okay, we'll travel for three months. We'll take three weeks at home and we'll do, you know, whatever that. Right. And then the seeing the world, my grandmother is from Saskatchewan, Canada and came to the US to work for the government at the White House, where she met my grandfather. And her stories of travel and seeing the world were so different than my Italian family in Eastern Pennsylvania, who only went to Seaside Heights and to Florida. And when we went to Seaside, we took over the whole hotel. My grandmother brought pots and pans. She cooked every day. <laughs> and I was like, we just moved Easton to Seaside. Like, this is awful. And I always was curious. I found myself you know, reading a lot of books about other places in the world, wanting to see what it was like to see the Eiffel Tower in person, wanting to fill a passport with stamps, which I've already done once and I'm working on my second. And you know, when you fill a passport, they they poke a hole in it because it's now invalid because you have no more pages to fill, which when that guy poked that hole in my passport and 
slid it across the counter at LAX and said, your passport's invalid. There's no more. But he looked so disgruntled with me. And I looked at him, I said, do you know what a gift that is that I filled a passport, man? Like, and I filled that passport on someone else's dime. I love that. I have yet to really pay for myself to do any of this travel because I still to this day get to do international events. And I would always parlay another trip on or where I would use miles to do my own trips that I acquired from all of these other trips. So those three things really came from observing, like just observing how my small town family lived, observing how my grandparents lived and observing how different your life is. I watched TV. I saw people were living a different life than me. I knew that I wanted money. You know, not everybody grows up with this. I want money thing. My brother is a mailman. He's happy with his salary. He's raising his five kids on. It doesn't bother him that he's never going to make more money than maybe some overtime. I didn't want limits. I wanted to know that I could kind of live a more lavish lifestyle. And that inspired me. That motivated me. I'm not wanting to get wrapped up in stuff. But if a lavish lifestyle means I could stay in a little bit nicer of a hotel in Europe, I'm doing that because I want AC. You know, <laughs> if it means not just going to Seaside Heights and going to Florida, I'm doing that. So those three things really were like the layers of my young life of observing my family, wanting to get out of my small town, wanting to see what the world was about, and really wanting to learn, grow and explore. Yeah, let's unpack this. First question for you goes back to what you had said in regard to starting to build some resentment towards your dad because of, you know, his mindset and like how he treated, you know, your mom at that time. I'm curious, did that resentment that you had toward him impact your relationships like going forward? You know, it did and it didn't. I think I could see that as an isolated incident. I also think getting out of my bubble of Easton and moving to California really opened my eyes. When I moved to California, one of the first things I did when I started to make some money was I hired a therapist, right? Because I was like, there were all these things I wanted to do. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to see a therapist. And that therapist, because of the trauma that I experienced with my dad, said, I want you to make five guy friends and you can never have sex with these guy friends. You can never do anything. You need to make five male friends that you respect and you need to build your love towards men in a different way. So far, you've seen them two ways. You've seen them at the strip clubs where you've been working and you've seen your father and your uncles. You know, I grew up, it's an Italian family. Some of them drank a lot. Some of them were, you know, a little abusive to their wives. Like what I saw was not a great example. So when I took this data to a therapist, which I did it for three years, it was the greatest thing at 22 years old I could have ever done for myself because now I have this incredible balance of male and female friends. And I think having male friends helps you be less negative towards men, right? You see that how men think about their wives, their girlfriends, their friends, you have good positive interactions. So I wanted to break all of those chains. And I knew that I could have had a propensity to be negative towards men because I heard so many women, especially in strip clubs, you know, constantly complaining about the trauma they experience because of a male person in their life, a brother, a father, an uncle. And I was like, okay, that's present, but does that have to predict my future? So how do I get out of that space? And the only way to cleanse it was to really learn about it and have someone give me these exercises to make my life better moving forward. I love that. I love therapy too, by the way. So I'm really excited to hear that you did that. I'm also curious, are you still friends with those five gentlemen? 
four out of five of them I am. One of them got married in one of those situations where sometimes I lose guy friends over a new woman in their life not accepting me because of my past and thinking that there's no way we could be just friends. But out of four out of five isn't bad. That's actually incredible. Very much so understand why people would do that. And it has nothing to do with you. And it's all about like self-esteem, jealousy, all of that. So makes sense. But going back to those goals and picking this apart a little bit, I'm really curious to learn if you felt like you were impacted by the conditioning that you were in front of in regards to money. Now, it seems like you did the opposite. Like you, you know, you were like, hey, I'm not gonna do this. And you know, you wanted that financial planner that you saw your dad with. Like, I'm, I'm really curious, like, how did that impact you? It was huge because, of course, as I was laying out, how am I going to build this? The obvious answer when I started dancing and meeting these adult performers that were coming into the club, porn stars, Playboy Playmates, magazine models, I was like, okay, these women are making the most money. They're also getting paid to travel. They're also not having to deal with regular customers at a club, which can be very draining because these guys want to build some sort of a relationship with you, right? right. They're in there every day. like That becomes very draining. And I was like, this is going to fast track me to that financial independence, right? This is going to be it. This is the only way. There's no, you know, commissions I can make at Nordstrom selling makeup. You know, there's no other job where I'm going to have this opportunity to make this incredible amount of money. From 20 to 22, I worked at a club that had these feature entertainers coming every week and I interviewed them for two years. Some of them I'm still friends with. Some of them I met when I was 18 and I'm still friends with to this day, which is so cool because they remember me doing this. Some of them wouldn't answer my questions at all, which I understood, but I wanted to collect as much data so that when I went out to LA, I didn't get eaten live. I knew what to expect. I knew how to make the most money. I wanted to be on the box cover. I wanted to be a contract girl. I wanted my name incorporated in with a title. I wanted to know about what I need to do to protect my name. Like two years is a nice study time to get to interview 50 different women a week. Let's say 35 of them let me interview them. I collected data from 70 active performers that could tell me, don't do this, do do this. And even if it was just 10 things per person I spoke to, those 10 things, by the end of me putting the survey together of what were the top 10 things that were general across all these women that I spoke to. Okay, clear, not doing those. And when I got out to the industry, I was the most fierce. And I just interviewed a director that worked with me many, many years ago. And I asked him, what was it like to meet me when I first got into the industry? He said, we were all very afraid of you. You know, you knew who you were more than anybody we dealt with at that point. So we didn't know what we could get you to do or do. And we realized later, once we started working with you, that you were the best person because you knew what you did and didn't want to do. And so there was no wishy-washy and there was no like, well, maybe she'll do this. Maybe we could just get her to do that. No, I would come in and be like, this is what we're doing. This is what I'm willing to do. And this is what will be done by the end of the day today on set. And they never had anybody speak to them that way. And so now I'm getting to reconnect with people from 25 and 30 years ago. And it is fascinating hearing their take on me. Look, I've lived this life. I didn't know it was spectacular until I get to go back and kind of rewatch it. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that was very unique for them. And a lot of people wouldn't work with me because they didn't want a girl that they couldn't pressure into doing something for a little extra money. And that was great too, because it divided the business within the first six months of people that would never 
work with me and I'd never work with them, the people that were on board. I love this. What's your advice for the people tuned in to be so clear on what it is they want, right? Because we can get so caught up in what we think we want based off of what our parents tell us and, you know, whomever, the influences of the world. What's your advice for people to get clear? Know who you are. And I think that's one of the most important things in all walks of life. Know who you are. Have conversations with yourself after interactions. Did that make me comfortable? Did that make me uncomfortable? Why? You know, what would I have liked to gone differently? What if what, what could have gone better? With every interaction we have, we learn more about ourselves. I fell into the trap of buying a home when I was 24 because my parents, in, in, to our level of success, was owning a home, right? right? Now, I don't think owning a home is for everyone. If you're single, not married, without kids, without pets, you can complicate your life. A home Yes, you get a bit of a write-off. Yes, there are some benefits, but something's always breaking. You're always spending money. You're always fixing it up. There's always something more you want to do. When you let go of all of that and you're back in an apartment, which it wasn't until I was you know, 48 years old that I didn't own a home and I had owned a home, rental properties. I That's a lot of responsibility and I fell for it. So then later on down the road, I asked myself, well, is this something that you really want, need, and are is this bettering your life? Or is this embedded in your mind? So you're going to take some hits in life because we are conditioned to believe that things should be a certain way. I got married in my 20s. We probably would have never gotten married if we weren't living together for so many years and everybody in our lives were pressuring us about getting married. We're still friends now. We just celebrated our 21st wedding anniversary. We talk on our anniversary and on our birthdays. You know, we were together for seven years. I don't believe relationships should be erased from our lives because there had to be some good that you stay together. But when I look back now, I realize. Yeah. If people weren't pressuring us to get married, we probably would have been together another couple of years and just broke up. And it would have been way easier, way cheaper for me. I was the breadwinner. I had to buy out of the divorce. But that's just a price you pay in life to try different things. Right. So know who you are. And when somebody's pressuring you about something, take that information and maybe write yourself a little note about it and go back to it for a couple of days and see how it really makes you feel. We can act out of impulse. We can have knee-jerk reactions. But if you write something down and look at it for seven days, you will have different emotions to how you feel about it. And maybe you just decide, let me put this off for six more months. Tell Siri to remind me in six months to go back to that note. See how you feel about it then. Because there's no rush. This is not a race. Yeah. Well, we could definitely get caught up in thinking life is a race, right? So how do we not do that? Yeah. When you're young, it is so hard to not think you have to have everything right now. And to be honest with you, it doesn't go away until you get older. Like when you're in your 40s, for me, my 40s, now in my 50s, you just start to realize like, Uh, I can make that decision later. When I was in my 20s and 30s, everything had to be made right now. Luckily, I was smart enough to put timelines on things like interviewing the talent before I went out to California because I want to be really sure that I want to do that with my life. I want to be really sure I want to expose myself that way. But you just have to reel it in. You know, I have a 24-hour rule in life. I don't make any decisions within 24 hours of being asked to make the decision. And you kind of know whether it's a no right away. You kind of know whether it's a yes. But I just like to give myself that time to really think about, am I saying yes to be nice to somebody? Or am I saying yes to, you know, just make it go away? Am I saying yes because I want to? So what I do with people is like, no one can get me to respond on impulse. And I started this when I turned 30. I went to a 24-hour rule with every gig, everything that was offered to me because I found myself sometimes taking gigs out of that embedded survival mode and not because I wanted to. And once I really gave it 24 hours, thought about it, 
then I can make a better decision. Like, okay, maybe I do it if, maybe there's a compromise here. Maybe I don't still want to do it, but maybe if the travel was better or the money was better or something. So it allows you time to not get it right now. And if you tell yourself you're not going to make any decisions for 24 hours, you start to train your brain into understanding that waiting is better, that thinking about things is better, and then you won't be chasing everything right now. Yeah, that's really difficult for us millennials to do. I mean, I'm just thinking about it right now. I'm like, yeah, dude, this is something you need to start to instill in your life. But But you're a millennial. You've had everything at your fingertips. You had a cell phone like so young, you know, we used to have to use a calling card on the road at the hotel payphone. You'd put in like 25 million digits and hope that you had minutes left and you'd get on the phone and the voice would come on and say, you have a minute left. So like, you know, we had to buy those calling cards and some of them were a scam. So you had to learn about them. Like nothing was instant for us. Yeah, We didn't have apps to order food. If room service was closed, you had no food. Yeah, things were different, but I'm going to be honest and I'm not saying this to flirt. I would have not thought you were in your fifties if I didn't do my research and like, no, about you would not have thought that I will ask you a question you wished more people would ask and how would you answer it that's a great question I mean whatever comes up like it doesn't even need to be like on the personal development spectrum but whenever I ask this it's more so with the intention of ensuring that you know I'm doing my job as a podcaster covering the ground where it needs to be covered but like if there's something on your heart or on your mind that you want to discuss like you know just whatever comes up I think probably for me, it would be, you know, what's been your favorite things about your life? Because of course, most questions go right back to being in the business. How'd you get in the business? Why'd you get in the business? So more questions about me as a human, as Lisa, as opposed to me as Lisa Ann, which you have tackled so far flawlessly through this entire conversation. I appreciate that. Which is so flattering to me that I'm getting to have conversations that are based more on me as a human and not me as Lisa Ann. Yeah, I mean, I figure, you know, just from seeing you on other interviews, like you get asked those questions all the time. Like, I mean, understandably so as well, right? I mean, a really prolific career, like what you've been able to accomplish in that space. So I understand that. Don't get me wrong. There are questions I have about that space, but more so on the personal side, right? Like I'll give you an example. I am not a scientist by any means, but I'm just really curious to understand how you as a female can separate the pleasure of business, which it was for you, and the pleasure of personal. Like that to me is something that's really curious because I personally view intimacy as, you know, first of all, one of the most vulnerable states that you can be in with someone else. And then furthermore, like a sacred moment. So I'm curious for you and your perspective, like how did you separate the two? You use the key word right there. You used intimacy. So there's an intimacy in a private moment in your my personal life that will never be duplicated on set because there's other people in the room. There's lights on you. There's no background sound. You're opening up for a camera. You know you are actually doing a task. Now, the reason the task is not easy for everyone is because not everyone has that voyeuristic hitch where when I started dancing, I was like, you know what? I like this and I can do this. I have no problem being naked in front of people. When I interviewed that director, he told me he chose to work with me because he loved working with women that were previously dancers because he knew that they wouldn't be as guarded with their body and they wouldn't be as wrapped up in the lack of intimacy that they're feeling during the scene. Because when you're doing a scene, it's very different. Doesn't mean it can't be hot. Doesn't mean you can't orgasm from it. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy it. But it is so different because you know that you are doing something, you're creating something, you're trying to please your director, your cameraman, your angles. You're in your mind thinking of how can this look the best for everybody to enjoy? And when I'm home 
in my personal space with my person, it how can we be enjoying this the most? The mind is so much calmer. And it's also, you know, good sex should be a dance. It should really be a dance and a flow of movement. No awkwardness. You know, sure, sometimes you move around and you bang somebody <laughs> in the head or something <laughs> weird happens, right? But that's what good sex really is. It's this dance, it's this flow. And that flow comes from the connection you feel with somebody, a mutual connection where you're both so into each other and it's magical, right? Those feelings are not on set. Those feelings don't arrive on set because on, on set, you're thinking about, you know, is my hair in the way? You know, is this angle good for the cameraman? Am I blocking the light with my arm? Do I need to chicken wing it? You know, that's an expression we use when a guy is in the scene, you know, if his arm's in the way, the director will go, chicken wing it. And, you know, the guy's got to go back here with his arm. So you are, you're factoring in all of the things that need to take place, which makes it a job, mm. right? But I'll, I'll address like the intimacy. There's a lot of women in the industry, a lot of people in the industry who escort. And that was never my thing because I felt like I can make enough money legitimately. Why do I want to break the law? Why do I want to do any of those things? But the main thing to me is that intimacy of being alone with a stranger and selling sex, I could not have done. That would be not something I'm good at because that's when it's different. That's what it's like, okay, there aren't, a, there isn't a boom guy here. There aren't people holding space. So we all know what our limits are. I knew that was my limit right away. Like I, I knew the difference between sex at home and sex on camera. And so though you're sharing a moment with your fellow performer, you're also almost sharing a moment as a team playing a sport where you know, if we go great at this for X amount of time, this is going to be, it's, we're going to breeze through the scene. It's going to be easy. It's not always easy. You're not always working. You know, I'll give you an example. Like if you're in the Valley in LA in the summer and you're shooting a scene outside, it might be 110 degrees out. So you might have to stop every 10 minutes because the equipment's heating up, you're heating up. You know, all of those moments are taking away from that flow that can just make it happen. So I've separated my mind by being an entertainer and then being a person. Yeah, I love this. Now you talk about connection, right? And how intimacy sex is, it's poetic, right? It's definitely a form of art. So is that connection for you at least, is it more mental? Is it more physical? Is it like the perfect combination? I'm curious like what it is for you. It's the perfect combination. A lot of it is mental with me, you know, having someone in my life that has a like mindset as myself, who has the same energy and vibration of myself, like I'm way more into that person. And it's not a looks thing. There's no like, this is my type. This sure. is what he must do for a living. This is what he must have. It's none of that. It's a frequency. And so when I find that, you know, I really lean towards that. I've only been in two relationships my entire life that were like long-term relationships. So my husband and the relationship that I'm in now, I've had a guy in my life for 13 years who, you know, we go on and off. There've been times where, you know, when I was shooting and never had a problem with anything I've done because he's first thing he says, you're like, you're self-made. You do you, you do your thing. None of this has anything to do with us. Right. right. But the connection I feel with him is something I've never felt with anybody else. And that's why he's been in my life for 13 years. That's why he's my absolute favorite connection because it's just beautiful from the second I'm in his presence. And when I first met him, you know, I had said to him like, it's weird, but I've never felt more comfortable in my own skin in someone's presence than I do with you. And that has never changed. And to me, that's what makes for the best sex. I love that. 
So many more questions. I only have you for a few more minutes, though, so I want to respect your time. It's okay. I'm fine. I don't have my next thing is until 1.30, so we're good. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question that was asked to me on this show, and it actually came from an individual that works with the Seattle Seahawks. His name is Dr. Michael Gervais. He's a really incredible individual. And the question is, if I knew or if the people listening to this knew what you know, how would our life be different? I think people would be more open-minded, less judgmental, more empathetic, and more understanding. And I think they would be healthier and happier because I put myself first when it comes to optimizing my health, my fitness, how I eat, how I live, how I recover, all of those things. Putting yourself first is something when I talk with people on social media, I get a lot back. Well, I'm really busy and I feel that it's selfish. I have a family and I'm like, no, you can give more to your family and to everybody in your life if you're taking care of you. And the more you take care of you, the longer those people in your family get to have you in their lives. So that's the key. When it comes to being more empathetic and understanding, you don't know what somebody's life has been. And the judgment that I get still to this day and horrible things that people have said to me makes me understand that they don't know what my upbringing was like. Like they don't know what I went through in my life that made me formulate these thoughts that made me take these actions. And it's so easy for us to jump on a bandwagon and judge somebody because we don't agree with what they're doing. But we also don't know the entire path that led them getting there. And when it comes to being less judgmental, you know, we call this like this woke culture, right? Where we've taken this extreme and everybody, you know, it's like, oh, this is a woke culture. It's really not. It's stop judging people. No matter what it is that they do that you don't, that makes them different than you is what makes us all so incredibly unique and powerful in this world. Because with all of our different thoughts, we power this universe to grow and evolve and experience and live. And so having less judgment doesn't mean for me and somebody in the industry, it means for everything. If you don't like something you're seeing, that's okay. You can either lean in and learn about it so you have an understanding of it, or you can just ignore it and walk away. But you don't have to force an opinion towards it. And the most important thing is to not judge it. What would it take for our society, the world, to start applying that? Because if people lived by what you just shared, how different would this world be? I think that social media has made everybody think that their opinion matters. And, you know, opinions are like noses. We all have them. But some thoughts can stay right up in here and you can have them with yourself or maybe you have them with your best friend. Maybe you have somebody you have a good banter with. But to share it with the world and put it out on social media, to bring it to work, you know, to bring it into spaces that are not your trusted spaces really shows you as being uneducated and weak. And people show themselves to be uneducated and weak every day on social media by slamming something that they don't agree with, by cancel culture saying this person, look, you have a choice to cancel that person. You don't have to watch their movies. You don't have to go to their live shows. You don't have to do it. But you don't need to get people together to bully because we live in an anti-bullying culture, but we bully more than ever because cancel culture is bullying. It's getting a bunch of people together that want to align themselves and belong to something and be in a group but that group is negative and that group is potentially shaming someone else's way of life, someone else's existence, someone else's thought or their opinions. So all of that could change, but I just think we're too drummed up. You know, this last election, COVID really made Americans have angst. And when you go over to other countries now, they kind of watch us as a reality show. They think we're wild. They think we're like so wildly opinionated about everything. They think we're so judgmental. And I'm like, wow, 
well. To look through their lens, it's embarrassing. It's neat that they understand it because to them, it's, you know, just let people live. If they don't ally with you, you don't have to hang out with them, but let them live their life the way they want to live. It's really not affecting you. It's not. It's not at all. It's not. It's not affecting you. It's not affecting you. If there's a campaign out there and somebody advertises something, it's not affecting you if there's news out there. It's only affecting you if you let it. And when you jump on that bandwagon, you have taken yourself down notches in your personal growth because anything negative you do takes away from the bandwidth that you have to do positive things every day. Exactly. I love that. One thing I give you credit for, and this is from an outsider's perspective, so you might be able to argue this from an insider's perspective, but you have such great composure when it comes to those fake accounts. I've seen you like tweeting about that and stuff. That must be such a pain in the ass. It's a pain in the ass, but more than anything, I don't like that my people get scammed. Right. You know how many people have come to me after they've spent so much money, you know, trying to purchase me or get a date with me or, or chat with me. So it's really, it's so important for me to do Takedown Tuesdays because I'm raising awareness about scams, not just on my name, but on all celebrities' names, on all things on the internet. Like be aware of what you're doing. It's frustrating. I finally decided it's time to throw money at it. So I committed five grand this week to throwing money at it so that the top five accounts on each platform that are bothering me the most can be dealt with professionally through my trademarks and an attorney going to the social media companies themselves. I'm doing it because if there's just a couple of them that are grinding me, one on TikTok, I've sent TikTok my trademarks. I sent them everything I have and they still keep sending the email back. We think this goes under, you file under this. So then I go and file under this and it doesn't get done. And this person's getting more views, getting more traffic. And the second I put up content that I pay somebody to create for me, they steal it and put it on theirs and TikTok allows it. So, you know, I sat with my trademark attorney this week because now it's time that we all add on AI to our trademarks. So we mm. now have to have trademarks with our name, dot I. And so I was like, all right, well, you know, while we're in this, what would it cost me to do this? He's like, well, it'd be, let's start with 5,000. You know, it be about 12 hours or so of us working on it. And this is what we've done for other people. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do it. This is an expense that I'm going to take on just because I want those top five on all platforms removed. And I'm also hoping that that kind of maybe pokes the bubble with these other social media companies to realize that I am licensed. I'm registered and trademarked. I've been using my name and likeness for over 30 years and to protect my content. Yeah, no, that's important. And that's great advice for people tuned into this too, because... That shit's real. That's so real. But okay, transitioning forward, one thing that I've been doing is asking a past guest a question to ask a future guest. Now, no one... Oh, my girlfriend Kay just told me about this is a trend right now and she loves it and she's doing it too. It is. It is. I actually saw it from... I don't know. Do you know Stephen Bartlett? Yep. Yeah, he has such a great podcast. Yeah, he's so fantastic. And I was watching a show. Honestly, I think it was with Alex Cooper. I never listened to Call Her Daddy or any of that, but I think she's She's great, though. Yeah, she's she's awesome. She's so cool. She's so cool. And look, she's crushed it in the podcast space. And as fellow podcasters, we champion those who have have done this, right? So, like, we're all behind her because we're like, you got the bag and you're amazing. And now she's engaged. And I'm like, this is such an exciting thing to just watch. Absolutely. So, that's where I got the idea from. And the question that I'm going to ask you, which was from yesterday's episode, is what's one major difference between you today and you from six months ago? Six months isn't that long of a time. I've recently started fasting one day a week. So I do intermittent fasting, but now I've added in a full 24-hour fast one day a week and I'm journaling it for six months to see the results. I did the cover-to-cover read on a book called Eat, Stop, Eat. Mm. I was like, you know what? I'm going to try this, how our own body depletes 
bad cells and brings in new cells, peaks your HGH levels because you're producing again, all of those things. So I would say the fast, but six months isn't really that long of a time, right? So I would say that would be the one thing that changed is adding in that disciplined one day a week. I'm actually on my fast today. How have you felt? And I'm sorry, this is New York for you. I literally have dogs outside barking, but um, it's so cute though. Yeah. I don't know whose dog that is. <laughs> How have you felt on that 24 hour fast? I've done that in the past and it's, it's a little challenging to be honest. Funny enough, we actually just had this woman, Cynthia Thurlow on the show. Who's like all about it. She's like the queen of fasting. She's absolutely incredible, but I definitely have challenges when it comes to the 24 hour fast. But how has that been for you? It was great. So normally I would just not eat my first day I came home from traveling, but okay. it would be like, you know, whatever time I got home, because that's when you want to let the inflammation go down, you know, all of the things from being up in the air. When I added in the first 24, then I was going to bed and I was like, well, I'm not going to eat now. So I actually did 39 hours my oh, first time. I've read that that's not necessary. 24 is a good cap if you're going to do it once a week, but I felt great for mm. like the next two days after your mental clarity, your how you just feel you've released toxins from your system, you know, how you are everything about how you're excreting, like going to the bathroom and, and everything is just so different because you are doing that last bit of work there. Sure. But I felt really, really good. You got to time it properly. So you get a lot of it in during your sleep. That's how I do my intermittent fasting. But I mean, I felt like such a rock star the next first day after that I was like, I'm doing this every week for six months. I'm going to journal my results. I'm not doing this to lose weight. I'm just doing this as another way to use my own body as a tool to heal itself and to see how I feel on it. I didn't feel any difference in like, I thought I was going to feel low blood sugar, but at the 12 hour mark, your body starts kicking insulin back into you and starts giving you what you need. We just never wait. Yeah. So once I waited, I was like, okay, so, and I did a nice dinner out with a friend last night and I ate a nice robust meal, even dinner. And I'm like, this is going to be so easy to fast tomorrow because I had this big meal tonight. I love that. See, I would have never known this side of you unless we had this type of conversation. So it's a, yeah, I'm a huge fitness person. I've seen, I've seen on social and whatnot. I love that. So the, the next part of what I just asked you is what's a question that you will ask the next guest, not knowing who that guest is. What's the one thing that you did for yourself today? Mm. What is that for you? Is it the fasting? Workout. I meditate every day in the infrared sauna. So I did my workout this morning. I did my meditation. And then this afternoon, I'll go over and freeze at cryo. So I do a cryotherapy at least five days a week. So, And those are things that as I'm doing them, I tell myself, like, thank you for taking this time out for you and for doing this for yourself. And I'll like give myself a little... You take good care of yourself. Yes. <laughs> and so if for somebody, it could be like they read a couple chapters of a book they loved this morning or they went for a walk. But like we can get so into touching our phones when we wake up. I don't touch my phone for the first three hours I'm awake. That's my time. That's when I work out, I meditate, I shower, I get ready for my day. And then I pop on some sports radio and I start checking emails. Too many people wake up and go directly to their email. Guess what? Unless you're a heart surgeon, a brain surgeon, or you're saving lives, nothing in your email could change your life more than taking you first and taking even an hour first thing in the morning. Don't look at social media. Don't look at any of it and just be in your own thought. I love reading a chapter or two every morning when I first wake up. It just helps me wake up and it's just like a soothing thing to do. But yeah, I'd like to know what your next guest did for themselves already. I love that. Day. What are you reading right now? 
Right now I am reading, oh my gosh, why is the name of it slipping me? I can find it for you because I just finished Love People Use Things for my book club. I have have a monthly book club right now on YouTube. So I just finished that one and I went back to... I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it. I'm so sorry. No, you're good. You actually... Go ahead. Okay. It is called Outliers. It's one Oh, by Malcolm Gladwell. Gladwell. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm back on Outliers now. Have you... So I'll tell you something trippy, and I think this is an Outliers. Have you got to the part where he talks about plane crashes? No. I read that while on a plane. Oh, Uh, not good. Not... Not good. Not, not good. Ideal. No, not at all. While on a fucking plane, and I was like, "Oh God, I'm pretty sure that's an outliers." I'm 99% positive. So if you have, if you well, have- look, plane crashes were very prevalent in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, and it wasn't until I started studying them later in life that I realized that's why my family drove to Jersey and to Florida because a lot of that generation was actually afraid to fly. Right. No, it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. But um, that's a very good book. So you'll enjoy that. I'm going to ask you one last question beforehand. We just want to let everyone know socials, websites, all of that good stuff will be in the show notes. What else should we put in the show notes? Like what do you have going on that we should make people aware about? Well, for the month of June, I'm going to do a best ball draft every day with followers. So that's 11 other teams up against me. Best ball is season long fantasy football. Except All you got to do is the draft. You don't have to set your lineup. You don't go to the waiver wire. You just draft a really robust team and your best scores are tallied every week. I'm using this month of June to make this my best fantasy football and sports betting season ever. And I know that by doing a draft a day, it's like grinding out study time because then I'm going to do a breakdown on my blog, thereallysand.com of each draft afterwards. You'll be able to watch them live on my YouTube channel. But all of my social media is The Really Sand. I have two books out. The Life and The Life Back. You can get them both at shoplisaann.com. And pretty easy to follow. Just know if it doesn't say The Real Lisa Ann, it's not The Real Lisa Ann. As simple as that. I love that. So quick question. If you have number one pick in the draft, half PPR, full PPR, whatever it is, who are you going with? And it's so tough because I think Bijan Robinson as a rookie would be the craziest first pick, but I'm doing it in like my first best ball draft to see how it lands with me. Like see how crazy it is. Got drafted by the Atlanta Falcons. He's in the perfect situation to just be a number one back in not a shared backfield. And he's got fresh legs. And I just think it's a great fit. Sure. You're going to look at Saquon Barkley. You're going to look at Christian McCaffrey. For you, but you're all looking at these players like, okay, another year older, another couple injuries behind them. Will they be the same? You know, so I just want the youngest, freshest running back in the perfect system that isn't sharing the workload. But it's going to seem crazy and I'm going to get backlash in the draft room because people are going to be like, oh my gosh, you're taking a rookie with the number one pick. Nobody does that. So I've got to live through it and see. And that's the great thing about best ball. It's like mock drafting. You know, you get to actually see your team afterwards be like, do I feel good about that or do I not feel good about that? I love that. This. I would have said Derrick Henry. So I guess I'm totally off because you didn't I even love Derrick Henry too, <laughs> but I just worry about Tennessee and like he's so durable. There's no doubt he's so durable, but I just don't see them really having to need him as much as Atlanta Falcons need. Before. Sure, sure. Yeah, two years ago. I mean, he's always my number one pick. I'm going to be honest. Not necessarily he's number fantastic. one. fantastic. Yeah, he's my first round pick every year. So people already know that's coming. I appreciate that. So last question for you. If Lisa makes it to what Whatever year she wants to live to, she does all the cryotherapy, she writes all the books, hops on all the pot, like does it all. You do everything you want to do, but you could only be remembered for one piece of advice. I'm not asking you how you want to be remembered. I'm asking you, what's the piece of advice that people attach to your name, like etched in your tombstone? What is that advice? 
to love yourself. I would think that most people in my world know that the one thing that I stress the most is to make sure that you love yourself. Because if you don't love yourself, then you need to do some tweaks and figure out how you could love yourself more. Because when you love yourself, you're going to find a better partner because you're actually the true self that you want to be. If you love yourself, you're going to take things less personally. You're not going to be as upset over things saying nasty things to you on social media. If you love yourself, you're going to have a confidence that just vibrates from you. And if you love yourself, you succeeded at life. You really have if you ask me. I love that. Lisa, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Super excited to amplify it. Again, show notes will have websites, socials, all of that fun stuff. But thank you so much. I'm looking forward to having a slice of pizza with you. (laughs) I love it. You have just tuned into episode number 283 of the Decoding Success podcast featuring Lisa Ann. Not only was there a reason you listened to this episode today, but you made it to the end of the show. That is telling in itself whether you found this to be valuable, educational, or entertaining. You tapped in and made it to the end. So I'm going to put it back out there for you to share this episode with those in your life, whether it be a tip on intimacy or business acumen, anything in between, there's something for them to take away and you could be the one to deliver it to them. Expressing gratitude in advance for you sharing this with them. And furthermore, you could check all things Lisa out in the show notes of this episode, whether it be social media, books, websites, fantasy football stuff, all in the show notes of this episode. Let Lisa know that you checked her out here on Decoding Success. And until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.